0: You can turn in your copy of God's word tonight to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, a short series. we're doing an interlude in the book of um, as we're going through the book of James. Short series looking at the servant songs of Isaiah, these prophecies, prophecies of the Messiah himself. Very clear words even from the pre-incarnate Christ in these passages. And actually, why don't we stand as we hear God's word to us? Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13. This is God's holy, powerful word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land. To apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for help as we look to your word, that you will illumine its contents especially illumine the darkness of our hearts that we might receive the light of your word for Jesus' glory. Amen. You may be seated. We know that as early in our catechism we're told that we live in a world of sin and misery, right? We live in a world of sin and misery and you don't have to look far before you see a lot of suffering and a lot of pain in this world. And if you were to really take some time to try to contemplate the amount of pain in this world, not just in your own life or the lives of people you know, but people suffering from starvation and abuse and illnesses of all sorts, it is mind-boggling when you think about the sufferings of this world. And it can have an effect on our hearts, and it hurts us, and we think to ourselves, does God care? What, what is God doing about all of this? Recently, my mom was telling me about a friend who was coming to her wanting to talk and just saying, I I just can't deal with the amount of hatred I see in this world. The amount even of what I see in the church of people speaking against one another, fighting, and how can I raise my kids in this world that seems increasingly bleak and against God? She was struggling with this hopelessness. And we often feel these sorts of thoughts. Where is God in this world? What is God doing? What will he do? Well, I think perhaps before we ask the question of what God is going to do, we need to remember what God has already done. That God has already worked in history to bring about a renewing in this world. To bring about a source of hope in the midst of the hopelessness. In our text today, we read of Jesus the Messiah who's likened to an arrow. He's called a polished arrow and jesus like an arrow has pierced right into the middle of our sin and misery bringing god's salvation salvation is what this world needs and though we don't yet see the final flowering and effect of all that christ's coming will accomplish yet we can say that truly hope has come to this world and that hope has a name the name of jesus In Isaiah 49 tonight, we're going to see in this second of Isaiah's servant songs, a song that expounds the salvation and redemption that comes to this world through the servant, the Messiah. Now for the previous chapters, Isaiah has been prophesying to Israel about how they will be delivered from their present um, captivity in Babylon. They're in a foreign nation and God is telling them they will be returned to their own land. But Isaiah jumps now beyond this. To speak of a greater restoration, a greater rescue, and the rescue of God's people that won't just be exclusive to Israel, but for the whole world. In this prophecy, amazingly, we see the words of the Messiah himself speaking, and then we see the words of the Father speaking to him. We actually have here a window into a divine conversation, as well as seeing the speech that they give and present to us as part of the world let's consider this together, how hope has come, how salvation has pierced the world in Christ, this arrow of salvation. Take a look with me at verse 1. The servant himself here begins speaking, speaking to the nations, giving this declaration of his calling and character. He says, this is the Messiah talking, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. We see right away that this servant is called by God, has a divine calling from before he ever did any earthly actions. And he's named with a divine name. Do you remember the angel told Joseph that the child to be born to Mary would be called Jesus? Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. And his name reflects his calling. The calling to be a savior of sinners. This is Jesus. And we see also something of his character represented in these images. Where he is likened to a polished arrow and said to have a sword coming out of his mouth. And these are apt figures that remind us of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, that his primary work was not as a miracle worker, but as a preacher, as a teacher. His disciples called him rabbi. Jesus was known as a teacher. And out of his mouth comes a sword, because his words cut right to the heart. They cut through all the confusion and chaos of this world right to the heart of the issue our need to be saved from our sins. We're told in Hebrews 4 that God's word is a two-edged sword that divides our inner thoughts and motives. It it calls us out and discerns us. And we think of an arrow, which is really a, a, a tiny sword that can shoot and work at a distance. And Christ, like this arrow, shoots into this world and comes and pierces. He comes and brings a message of good tidings. A message of salvation. And in his work, in his preaching, the end of it all is that God receives the glory. In verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here the servant even takes on the name Israel as an ideal of the people, as the representative of the nation, the perfect Israel, the Messiah. And God will be glorified in him, this sword wielder, this arrow, whom God has hidden in his hand, hidden in his quiver, who he protects in his ministry, protects and establishes for the mission of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And in this, it is his word that is making all the difference. And still today, we need to be reminded that the sword of Christ's word is still being wielded by all who preach the gospel. The sword cuts in our midst as Christ speaks through his mouthpieces. And the word of Christ is what the hopeless world needs. We need to be reminded that this world is not going to be rescued, sin is not going to be defeated, the effects of the fall are not gonna be pushed back by mostly better education systems or better economic policies or more humanitarian efforts, but by ordinary words that have extraordinary results. The word of Jesus. We remember, as Paul tells us, that the weapons of our warfare, the way the kingdom of God comes, is not through carnal, fleshly means, but through spiritual weapons. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Our fight is the fight of faith, and our weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So don't lose confidence in the power of this heavenly sword to do a work in this world. Because God's word pierces right to the heart to work that internal change that no external system can make. And so we need to always prize and cherish this word. We want to see it the sword of the Lord wielded in our pulpits, but also in our homes as we speak the word of God to our children and in our communities as we are truth tellers for God. And although this servant would come with this amazing work of salvation, coming with a sword ready to wield it, yet we see also that Jesus struggled with toils and pains in the process. And we're reminded that Jesus didn't come only in his divine nature, but he came and took on the weakness of human flesh. And so we see what Christ says in verse 4. Take a look. He admits to God these feelings. I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Even Jesus felt like his work wasn't bearing fruit at that time. He struggled with that, and we know that his road was one of suffering, his way was a way of grief. And at the end, all those crowds who were following him were gone. There was only a few at the cross. Jesus' mission could have seemed like a failure, and yet he had hope and confidence in God. He says, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with God. John Calvin paraphrases this saying of Christ in this way, that he might say, though my labor be unprofitable and though I have almost exhausted my strength without doing any good, yet it is enough that God approves of my obedience. And in our lives, as we're seeking to be people that are doing a work of words, Speaking to others, speaking the truth, we may be wondering whether it's having any effect, whether it was to any purpose. You perhaps wonder if your wayward children, did they ever hear the truths of God that you taught them? You wonder if your unsaved friends and family members could ever truly listen, if the words you spent trying to teach them and show them the truth ever did anything at all. Yet it is ours to trust God but to be faithful to his work and to his truth, leaving the results up to God, trusting that he will work in his own time and in his own ways. And so we don't lose heart in doing good. We sow, knowing that in due time we'll reap, speaking the truth in love. Christ came as an arrow, bringing salvation to this broken world. He was an arrow sent by the Father of heaven, For a worldwide mission of salvation. He was sent. So we turn from considering this sent arrow to the sender, to that archer in heaven, the Lord God who speaks next in our passage, declaring the purpose of the servant's mission to extend far beyond Israel. Take a look at verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And so God here is so explicit in his purpose and intention for the servant that his salvation and rescue would reach to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. God wants his salvation to go far beyond one people. God wasn't even obligated to save or work in Israel. He could have left everyone to their own devices. And yet, he delights to save a people, but he delights to extend that salvation to the whole world. And that's why he says to Jesus, the Father speaking to the Son, it's too light a thing for you to just raise up the tribes of Israel. But I have a bigger, broader mission to you, to go as a light to the ends of the earth. Because the Son, the Lord Jesus is so worthy that he deserves the praises of all peoples, not just some, son, some. And the Father is pleased in the Son. And we can actually see this pleasure of the Father and the Son in Psalm chapter two, where the Father speaks to him saying, Or the Father speaks to the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It was always meant that the nations would be the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was too small a thing to raise up the tribes of Israel. We can think of um, an example of what this sort of feels like. Um, Famous singer Pavarotti, who was well-known as this majestic, beautiful voice, Um, there was a group of people who had written a song that they wanted Pavarotti to sing. And so they said, we need to send Pavarotti an example of of the song so that he can hear it and see if he likes it to see if he wants to sing it for us. So they got a bunch of different people to record because they wanted the person to be good. They wanted a good tenor. And so they found a tenor to, to sing this song, and they came and brought it to Pavarotti, and he listened to it, and he liked the song, But he said to them, he said, this voice is so amazing. This voice needs to be heard beyond this room. And he said, I actually don't even want to sing this song. I want this person to sing this song because his voice needs to be heard. And that singer was Andrea Bocelli, who would go on to have just as illustrious of a career as Pavarotti. And they actually ended up singing this song in many parts together. I think that's a beautiful picture of the father to the son saying, though I would be glorified, I delight to glorify my son. That the voice of his word would be heard among all peoples. The beauty of his message of salvation sung throughout the earth. And yet father sings with the son and they glorify each other. And the whole trinity is involved in this God-glorifying work of salvation. The archer and the arrow, the sender and the savior. And this plan, this plan of salvation, God sending Christ into this broken world, it wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a nice thought. But this was a sure and determined plan. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. What this is saying is that as this message, the salvation goes to the nations, it will reach the nations. The representatives of the nations in the kings, the princes who represent the whole people groups, they will fall before the Lord's Christ and worship him. Israel was meant to be a missionary society in many ways. But no other nations ever came to worship Israel's God. Yet in the new covenant by the power of the Spirit, whole people groups come to accept Christ as king and desire to live under his rule. And we're promised that that mustard seed will become a great tree. The leaven will leaven the whole lump. And as we see in the revelation, all tribes and tongues will one day be worshiping God around the throne. And so I think that we need a greater gospel confidence we're often overly pessimistic and doubt the power of God to work in this world. Because you see, the lamb will receive the reward of his suffering. Christ didn't just die for maybes and I hope so's, but he died to purchase a definite people, and he will definitely work to save that people. And so we can have a powerful gospel confidence. And these truths we confess in Reformed theology that God chooses a people to salvation, that he actually saves that people and brings them to salvation, it doesn't hinder our evangelistic efforts. It actually empowers them because we know that there will be results. There will be results. And so don't give up on this nation. Don't give up on this world. Don't give up on society and humanity because God has a plan for us. God has a plan to give peoples to Christ. Because he is worthy of the worship of all peoples, and the Father gives all peoples as an inheritance to the Son. So let's have a greater gospel optimism. Yet at the same time, we don't want to be triumphalistic to an inappropriate extent. We know that God will work how he wills. As John Calvin says about this, he says it follows that we ought to have good hopes of success, but that we ought to leave it to the disposal of God himself that the blessing which he promises may be made manifest at the proper time and to whatever extent and in whatever manner God shall think proper. And so we have an, an attitude of perhaps what we might call composed optimism. Composed optimism. We can have optimism because salvation's of the Lord. If it was up to us, we'd have no guarantee. We'd have no reason to hope. We can have optimism, but we can also have a composure. We don't need to fret when things aren't going according to plan because it's also not up to our efforts to enact it. Then we'd be hopelessly fretful, thinking that we're never doing the right thing or enough things. But salvation is of the Lord, and so we can have composure in our vision of the mission of God. The salvation of God going into this world. What a delight to anticipate, to pray for evening by evening. Now, the salvation is going forth, and God has a particular aim. Salvation is this general term, but there's content behind it. The archer is aiming the arrow at a specific result. So let's consider, when the arrow pierces, what are the results we see in this world? What does a saved world, a hopeful world, look like? Look with me at verse 8. The Lord speaks to the servant, saying, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. This is what the arrow does when he pierces this world. He's a mediator between God and humanity. He's a bridge that connects us to our Maker to have relationship with the God who made us. And here, the effects of his work are presented to us in a metaphor that's well-suited to God's people at that time. Remember, God's people here, they're away from the promised land, the land of blessing, they're in exile. And so he gives them a metaphor of a return. He says that he will give the Messiah to establish the land and apportion the desolate heritages. This inheritance they had, it's been left desolate. Their vineyards are either being used by foreigners or just going dry. Their lands are going fallow. But God will give that promised land back to his people, that it might be a fruitful, habitable place again. It also says, even more so, the prisoners to come out, the dark ones appear. They are trapped and imprisoned in darkness. And so more than just being released and free, they're released into this beautiful new land. And this is a spiritual picture of what happens to the nations that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we live naturally, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The desires of the flesh that just carry us this way and that way, blown around by the conflicts and anxieties and the hatreds of our cultural moment. And so salvation means release from that prison. Freedom from continually being pushed around by our lusts. Freedom from that continual race to find meaning and happiness in life in places where they'll never be found. A new freedom, but also a new place. A new promised land. A new kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. It's a new place that we go to without ever leaving where we are we get to live in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of salvation. And the kingdom of Christ is the place where Christ rules. It's living under his rule and reign. That's the joy and hope we have in a broken world now, to live under Jesus's rule as our kind master. And it is good to live under Christ's kingship because he doesn't rule as a tyrant, but he rules as a loving shepherd. Take a look at the end of verse 9 into verse 10. This is what Jesus as a shepherd king brings for his people. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. Isaiah is using these poetic metaphors of the blessings of life in the kingdom of the Messiah. He talks about how the people will feed along the ways. That is, as you're walking along the path, there's food the whole way. And the amount of energy and effort people would expend to collect and plant and gather and cook food, none of that energy expended walking along the way and feeding. Similarly, it says, pastures on the bare heights, You know that generally the higher you go, the less vegetation you have. And it ends up just rocky. But it says there's going to be pastures on the heights. Even these most desolate places will have provision for the people of God. It says they will not hunger or thirst. They'll have freedom from internal pangs. No scorching wind, no scorching sun will hit them. They'll have freedom from these external pains. And the compassionate shepherd will lead the people by springs of water. Think of a desert society. There's nothing more desirable than a spring of water to clean, to cool, to refresh, to drink. Springs of water. These are pictures of life lived under the reign of Jesus. And the picture of all this is of the deepest longings and needs of our hearts being satisfied. And so when we are picturing what does this salvation mean for us now? What does it mean for us now? Because we still see a lot of pain in our own lives, a lot of suffering, a lot of circumstances that remain unchanged. So, what is the work of this blessing internally that we gain by Christ? And perhaps you wonder what is God doing in my life? What is even the benefit of following Jesus? And I've found it really helpful just to remember these four things, four things that are written down. In the Catechism, in the larger Catechism, question 83, which asks, what are the privileges that believers enjoy in this life? And if you're ever wondering what God has done for us in Christ, these four things are good to always recall to your mind. We're told that in this life, believers can enjoy a sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, and hope of glory. Isn't that what people need in this world more than anything? To be loved. And in God, we have an unstoppable fountain of love, love that covers our shame. What do we want? Peace of mind, peace in our conscience when our misdeeds accuse us and our shames follow us. We can have peace in our consciences through Jesus' forgiving blood. Joy. There's so much sadness. And to have an un, um, a limitless fountain of joy in the Holy Spirit is incredible not to mention hope of eternal life. If this life were all there were, would there be nothing to hope for? And yet, we have in Christ hope. Love, joy, peace, hope. What more could we want to bring about the beautiful blessings of salvation in the midst of this pained and broken world? And so it makes perfect sense that when the angel came, you know, the angel comes in the beginning of the gospel story and he says that I bring you Glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all peoples. The news of Christ is good news. It's glad tidings of great joy, not just for Israel, but for all peoples. And so we read in verse 11, this picture of the gospel going to all peoples, that he says, I will make all my mountains a road. My highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Mountains are hard to cross over. Valleys, they make travel difficult. To have them leveled, to have highways there, this is picturing the ease with which the once far-off people can come and enjoy the blessings of life in the kingdom of God. And surely we see the gospel has gone forth, as Acts 1-8 said. It went to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and has come to the ends of the earth, to even us here in West Michigan. God has pierced into this world of sin and misery, bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is great matter for praise and rejoicing. And that's how the text concludes in verse 13. It's a a call to praise. It says, sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Tidings of comfort and joy. In Christ, the Lord has comforted his people and had compassion on an afflicted world. So what has God done about this world of sin and misery? He's come in compassion to bring about a new life and a new kingdom, a life where we can enjoy the love of God, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, hope of eternal life, these pictures of feeding by the springs, having pasture everywhere we go, living under the rule of the good shepherd. This is the inheritance of God's people now, But this is just the down payment of the full inheritance that we will have hereafter. For again, these blessings, they come to flower and their fullness in the world to come. Consider with me Revelation 7 and notice the fulfillment of this passage. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great number that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isaiah 49 will be fulfilled. The nations worship the Lamb around the throne and they experience the blessings of Isaiah 49 in greater measure. Notice how this passage ends, and notices, notice the exact similarity in language of the blessings of heaven to the blessings of salvation. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So where is the hope for this broken world? The hope has come in Christ, the Lamb who was slain. But the hope increases in its full fulfillment in this final day. But this hope, the hope of Christ, it's come at a cost. Because our arrow of salvation was himself pierced by God. He, The one with the sword from his mouth received a sword in his side where blood and water flowed. And the lamb who receives the inheritance of the nations is the lamb who was slain, cast away like refuse, put into the grave. But yet the slain lamb is the lamb that stands in victory, who alone has power to open the seals and to see the word and blessings of God flow over the whole world. And so every blessing of salvation comes to us through the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. Through him we have love, peace, joy, and comfort now, but we await the final flower and full inheritance in the world to come. God has done much to redeem a broken world. God has done much for us in Christ, and yet he will do still more. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation you've brought us. Though we were lost and enslaved, dark and depraved, yet light has come in Christ. His word has gone forth. Your spirit has alighted on hard hearts and you have brought many into your kingdom. We thank you for each one here that has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and has been privileged to know Jesus as a savior, privileged to know you as a father and the Holy Spirit as a helper and friend. Lord, would we ever prize the blessing of salvation? Would we ever acknowledge Christ, the worthy one, who deserves not just the praises of the nations, but my praises? Lord, would I be one that worships and praises Christ the Lamb all my days? Would my brothers and sisters here join me in fervent worship to our Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, the servant, the Messiah? the one who brings salvation, who will have the praises of all nations. Lord, would this be the desire of our hearts, that Christ would have the honor and glory due his name both now and forever. As we ask in his name, amen.